This is an ABC podcast. So, Norman, among the fan mail, there's a particular message I think I might read to you. Uh-oh. <laughs> this person was at the Archibald Prizes with you a couple of weeks ago. says, I saw Norman Swan at the Archies and he wasn't wearing a mask. I was, and as I usually follow his advice, I was wondering if I no longer need to in these sorts of indoor situations. Norman? Yeah, Caught out is really all I can say there. (laughs) The spies Um, are everywhere. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I should have been wearing a mask. My only excuse is that, you know, having had BA5 recently, I'm unlikely to catch it or pass it on, but that's not an excuse for not wearing a mask. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. (laughs) A self-flagellation. I'm whipping myself as I speak. It's been a while between Norman Swan's self-flagellations. Well, I can't think of a better way to start CoronaCast, a show all about the coronavirus. And all the other germs that we have to live with. (laughs) I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Wednesday, the 31st of August, 2022. Norman, let's start today by talking about isolation periods with COVID-19. Back a couple of years ago when the virus first started, we were looking at about a fortnight, of isolating, that sort of dropped down to about seven days. And now we're hearing people moving towards wanting to make it five days and some groups even arguing that we don't need an isolation period at all, a, a, a mandatory one. And it was a kind of counterintuitive group saying it. It's actually the health union who's saying we should be trusting workers to make the right call as to whether they're safe to come back to work or not and not be imposing mandatory isolations from the outside. And, and this has been considered at uh, National Cabinet. This Corona Casco gets released Wednesday and National Cabinet's meeting to talk about just these topics. The union's coming from the point of view that a lot of healthcare workers are casual and they suffer financially by not being able to get back to work. Surely the health system suffers as well, though. Well, that's the problem. And you've got high-risk workers who are high-risk to themselves and also high-risk by spreading it to others. It's a very difficult decision at this point in the pandemic. Remember, the pandemic's not over. This phase of the surge with BA5 is coming off the top, but we've still got a running average of about 50 deaths a day. That is a significant number of deaths. So it's far from over. And the question is, what do we do about it? And there'll be a significant percentage of the population, we don't know which, who are either not testing, they're getting symptoms and not isolating at all. And we're at, what is it, 10 million cases in Australia. It's just gone nuts since January of this year. So let's just look at the science for a moment. One of the best studies of contagiousness has just been published in the last week or two in a journal called Lancet Respiratory Medicine. A British study, they looked at people who were contacts of others who had COVID-19 over two separate time periods of a few months each. Not a huge study, but done in a lot of detail with PCR testing, actually culturing the virus from these people or looking for the virus in actual culture. In other words, could you get the live virus? And also rat testing. In summary, from contact, about 20% of people were infectious before their symptoms came out. So one in five people infectious before the symptoms came out. Maximum infectiousness was three days after your symptoms emerged. At five days, two-thirds of people were still infectious, although the the quality of infectiousness, in other words, the how infectious the virus was, was tailing off, but still two-thirds were theoretically still infectious. And at seven days, 25% was still infectious. Rat testing was pretty lousy at diagnosing COVID-19 in the early days of the infection. So PCR was much, much better than that. So if you're relying on rat testing to diagnose 
COVID-19 not good from this study. But what it was good at was infectiousness as you went into the infection period. So, and it got to about 92% accuracy. So that's if you're testing yourself and you're getting a positive result, then that's a better indicator of whether you're contagious than if you're getting a positive PCR. Yes, after, after you've been diagnosed. So that means that you could actually rely to some extent on rat testing to see whether people can actually, let's say you're at a higher, you're an aged care worker or you're a nurse or a doctor, rat testing could actually tell you whether you can come back to work because there were significant numbers of people who were not infectious at three days in this study. So it's, it's pretty crude saying five days, seven days, you could actually rely to some extent on rat testing to get you through this for people who you really do not want, to, want this to be spread in the, in the general community. So we've been talking about healthcare workers, but what about, that's a high risk situation, what about the general community? This is where it gets really tough in terms of spread of the virus. There's probably a lot of people not compliant at the moment, not doing testing at all and going out and spreading and they're not isolating. So the virus is spreading anyway. So people might say, well, why would you bother? There are lots of areas of confusion here which don't help. But here's what it boils down to, is that if you go to five days, more virus will spread. It may not matter too much at the moment because a lot of people have had BA5 and they're very unlikely to get BA5 twice. You've got a problem with vaccination in Australia. About 35% of Australians have not had their third dose and they had their second dose now many months ago. They're not left with a lot of protection against infection, in fact, almost no protection against infection, and their protection against severe disease will be declining. It'll still be okay, but it's declining. And the longer you wait to have your third dose, the more people are likely to end up in hospital or with severe disease, even though they're vaccinated. So it's it's a lot of Australians who are seriously under-vaccinated. I think it's been a confusing time for people because we do hear about the fact that the vaccines aren't as good against the newer variants as they were before and that newer vaccines might be coming down the pipe that are better suited to the newer variants. But, of course, they're not here yet. And like you say... Even the older version of the virus, although it might not protect the vaccine, even though it might not protect you against infection, is still a really powerful tool against that severe disease and death. That's right. And the new variant vaccines are really against BA1. Um, Maybe BA5 later give you some protection against BA5, but not future variants. You really want to get your protection against severe disease up now and not wait for a new vaccine to come along. So if we increasingly let the virus rip, and removing the isolation period or reducing it to five days is another step in letting it rip. And then this goes to the myth of herd immunity. And you still hear some experts talking as if there's herd immunity to uh, COVID-19. And there's no herd immunity to COVID-19. There's maybe herd immunity to BA5, and there's certainly reasonable immunity to severe disease, protection against severe disease, which is declining because people aren't getting the third doses. But the fact of the matter is the way this virus is mutating is that the next variant to our immune system will look like a new virus. And it won't matter that we've actually had COVID-19 in the past. We will get infected all over again. And if it's very vaccine evasive, then more people will will become seriously ill. So you've got two things operating here. One is low vaccine coverage, dropping against severe disease, 
you've got people who think that they're going to have immunity to, in the future to new variants when they won't because of past infection. And we've dropped a lot of our barriers. So when or if a much more dangerous version of coronavirus emerges rather than one that's milder, we've got a major issue coming up. And then you've still got the issue of long COVID. And as vaccine coverage drops, then the, you increase the risk of long COVID and more and more people accumulating in the community with lung disease, with brain fog, with uh, dementia, heart problems um, in the community. And we don't seem to be too concerned about that. Can I ask, though, not to downplay the severity of COVID, but it feels like a bit of an anomaly in terms of having a government-mandated isolation period compared to other viruses that can be really severe. That At what stage does COVID stop being a special case where we're, where we're trying to sort of stop this very beginning part of the pandemic? At some stage, surely, we do have to move away from having a mandated isolation period, still asking people to isolate they, like they would if they had the flu or they had something like chickenpox, but that it's not coming from the government. That's a really difficult question to answer. We're still in the middle of a pandemic with an unpredictable virus. There are no easy answers at this point, but um, we could be mugged by reality. So there's a question here that sort of speaks a little bit to this. Um, someone's with a physio clinic in Adelaide and they've had a strict double vaccination policy until now, but they're saying it kind of feels redundant now and they're asking whether they should go hard and make sure everyone has had everything they can possibly have or just take away the double vaccination requirement. This person says, I really appreciate your thoughts on this as you've been my single source of truth and sanity for the last two and a half years. Well, thank you. And the pressure feels weighty to me, Norman. Yeah, it is. Look, it made sense last year when the vaccines were able to prevent infection. And the reality is now that vaccines no longer protect you against infection in the first place, you're not protecting other people by being vaccinated. You're protecting yourself. So it's up to you as an individual whether you protect yourself. So there's no point in having it in your practice because people are taking the risk on themselves. They're not risking other people getting the virus from them. And so, Norman, another little bit of vaccine news. Well, I'll explain it to you in language that you might understand. As Taylor Swift knows, sometimes it's difficult to prove that you were the original person who made something up, like, for example, her hit single Shake It Off. She's been accused of stealing those lyrics from someone else. And in a very similar way, we've got a lawsuit between Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech as to whose idea it was to make an mRNA vaccine first. I think this is uh, a stake in the ground by Moderna. That's what the commentators are saying. They're, they're not asking for, at this point, for Pfizer to take their vaccine off the market or any um, onerous commercial restrictions at this point. Most observers just think that what Moderna is doing is driving a stake in the ground for future mRNA development. In other words, giving them an option to come back at Pfizer at a later stage if other things take off using the, the technology. Does it mean anything for our access to whatever they make? Not at the moment, but it's probably more of a commercial risk for Pfizer at this point. Uh, beautifully answered and without any references to Taylor Swift either, Norman. Very well played. Anyway, that is all we've got time for on today's CoronaCast. If you've got a question, go to abc.net.au slash CoronaCast and you can submit it there. We'll see you next time. And we'll see you next week. See you then. <laughs> 